smokes. So uh, I'm, I'm always blown away by my dear friend Nina and the words that she speaks are always so eloquent and kind. Bonjour, danse, zongi bini si anene, tishnakas, nigani bini si gabo, tishnakas, ganuto tem. It's good to be here with all of you, and I want to thank especially the pioneers and give special recognition to the Ohlone peoples whose traditional territory we are gathered in, as well as the many other local indigenous peoples whose sacred lands make up this beautiful territory that we are gathered on today. After a long period of resistance to colonialism and decades of devastation during the 20th century, indigenous communities in Canada have reached a turning point. This is the culmination of specific struggles ranging from the white paper struggle, resistance to development and environmental racism in Grassy Narrows, the Mackenzie Valley and James Bay in the 1970s, through the legal and constitutional struggles of the 1980s and 1990s, and a range of local struggles in the 1990s and 2000s. Indigenous communities in Canada have developed a complex ideological and legal framework for engaging with and resisting the settler colonial state of Canada. Today across Canada, an unprecedented number of communities have risen up against colonialism and the ecological devastation of their traditional lands. In Ontario, where I live with my sons and my wife Corinne, the communities of K.I., Ardok Algonquin, Sharbat Obajawin, uh, Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory, Six Nations, Grassy Narrows, Moose Cree, and Tomogamy First Nations, among others, have developed and organized political resistance to assert their right to say no to the despoiling of their traditional lands and to govern themselves in accordance with their own traditions. Yeah. Across the rest of Canada, the story is much the same, whether it's against dam developments in Manitoba or Labrador, the tar sands in Alberta, uranium in Saskatchewan, the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline in Benada Northwest Territories, coal bed methane in the Skeena Valley or BC Peace River regions, or fracking on the Blood Indian Reservation, or in Elza Poktog First Nation in New Brunswick. Communities have confidently asserted their inherent and treaty rights, appealing both to a traditional understanding of treaty and the intent of our ancestors in signing the treaty. There is potential now for a broad social movement that issues a challenge to Canadian capitalism, colonialism, and ecological destruction that is profound as the broadest social movements of the past 40 years. Part of developing this movement has been in creating in, uh, spaces for indigenous communities to share experiences with each other and to strategize together outside of government-created bureaucracies. Also important is the creation of a large body of supporters who are able to articulate and understand the issues and to intervene in ways that support rather than bar the formation of a broader movement. Idle No More is one of the largest mass movements in recent history. This movement has sparked, yeah, this movement has sparked 
thousands of teach-ins, rallies, direct actions across the globe in support of democracy, Aboriginal and treaty rights, and environmental protections. As Nina mentioned, it began as a series of teach-ins back in November 2012 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, in the prairies, to protest laws that would scale back environmental protections and threaten Indigenous uh, self-determination and has now changed the social and political landscape of Canada, the United States, and beyond. When Prime Minister Stephen Harper crossed the Rubicon and clashed, slashed funding to Canadian Indian organizations, indicating his intent to pursue an aggressive plan of assimilation of Indigenous peoples, these factors helped create the perfect storm that was Idle No More. Visibly led by Indigenous women, the movement rapidly inspired Native and non-Native people alike to shift from a sense of hopelessness, a feeling of idling, into action. And although only just over a year in existence, there are more than 300,000 people who are active in the Idle No More movement. With, with 130,000 followers on Facebook, 100,000 event participants, 700 local Idle No More groups, and hundreds of organized events. Idle No More has shown its ability to use social media to communicate to our base and to the broader public, coordinating actions and raising profile of our issues into the mainstream consciousness. Idle No More also has a track record of bringing people out into the land and out into the streets, often on short notice, such as the emergency solidarity actions last October with the anti-fracking struggle in El Zapoctoc, where in just over 48 hours, Idle No More organized 140 actions in every Canadian urban center, <clears throat> every major US city, at every Canadian consular office, and actions in a half a dozen countries across the planet. At the height of Idle No More mobilizations last year through nonviolent mass actions, we shut down in response to Harper's omnibus bill legislation. Um, we shut down the majority of highways across the country, six border crossings to the United States, and we stopped every train in Canada's most densely populated province of Ontario, all with only one arrest. This speaks to the power of mass social movements combined with moral authority and the power especially of our Native women who are leading our movement. We recognize that without the organization of people on the ground and the building of movement's capacity to act strategically and responsibly, the movement will not have the leverage to achieve significant policy change. As a part of our effort to deepen our strategic capacity, early last year, Idle No More partnered with Defenders of the Land, a network of indigenous nations united in land defense. This collaboration has brought hundreds of person years of collective leadership, strategy, and policy experience together with the energy and dynamism of Idle No More. 
Through these strategies, Idle No More continues to engage rural and urban natives and non-natives in a way that emphasizes our joint responsibility to struggle for justice. We are, we, <laughs> thank you. We are working to refound relationships between indigenous peoples and non-native peoples on the basis of respect and reciprocity. And we are developing uh, effective collective power to stop the extractive industries most responsible for the destruction of our planet. Today's fight for energy and climate justice has been redefined in both Canada and the United States by a new sophistication and resistance from indigenous social movements, such as the International Indigenous Tar Sands Campaign, Idle No More, and dozens of local examples in which indigenous communities have effectively expressed self-determination. Indigenous peoples across North America have mastered the use of base-building strategies, including nonviolent direct action, financial choke point tactics, and lobbying amplified by social media technologies and conventional media strategies. Rooted in a strong indigenous spiritual foundation, these strengths have placed indigenous peoples at the forefront of a fight for against our economic paradigm of neoliberalism and all of its worst manifestations like climate change and its associated drivers such as Canada's tar sands and the dozens of battle zones across the continent where the promotion of hydraulic fracking is threatening hundreds of municipalities, First Nations and Native American nations. Back home in Canada, with the current Harper government and the passing of the recent omnibus bill legislation, Canada has effectively thrown out 30 years of environmental, social, and economic policy. Shame. The one area that the Harper government has not been able to stack the cards in is the courts and a native rights-based strategic and tactical framework supported by organized labor, ENGOs, students, and other social movements scaled up to the proportions of the 1960s U.S. civil rights movement is, not, is what's not only going to dethrone Prime Minister Harper and his extremist government, but it's the last best effort to save our resources from Canada's extractive industry sector and the banks that finance them. This rights-based approach has been tested time and time again. It is enshrined in Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution. It has been validated by over 170 Supreme Court victories. It is validated by all of the international Indian treaties. It is validated by the UN Framework Convention or uh, Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, by the ILO Convention 169, and many, many other legal instruments, both domestic and international. Indigenous peoples today are offering lessons on how to be resilient, to overcome oppression from an archaic oil sector and from our own governments who have lost their minds with power. Since, yeah. 
Since the 2008 financial crisis, Stephen Harper's conservative government has proudly advertised that Canada has a strong, stable and safe investment climate. The Prime Minister and his ministers have repeated this message across the country, around the world, in an effort to attract foreign direct investment to Canada. While the government continues to paint rosy pictures, there is mounting evidence that suggests Canada's investment climate is not as secure as the government has been claiming. With indigenous resistance to extractive industries on the rise and news headlines stating that indigenous lawsuits could paralyze the tar sands and aboriginal rights are a threat, are a threat to Canada's resource agenda. The situation is remarkably different than what the government of Canada is telling the investment community. What the Canadian government is not telling the investment community is that indigenous social movements across the country have created an unprecedented movement that is fighting in the streets and in the courtrooms for the protection of their territories and their sovereignty. This combination of indigenous resistance to resource extraction projects with a protective legal regime based on Aboriginal and treaty rights is the basis for much of the uncertainty in Canada's resource sector. Constitutionally protected rights and title has become an important tool for our First Nations struggling to protect our territories. Numerous Supreme Court cases have created a legal precedence where the absence of consultation by corporations and governments is leading to legal action by First Nations communities from coast to coast to coast. And this is raising the alarm bells for resource industries such as forestry, mining, and oil and gas. And combined with numerous well-organized, unrelenting acts of protest to resource projects, this legal regime based on Aboriginal rights and title is giving resource companies pause and raising concerns within the government for plans for resource exploitation in Canada. Yeah. There are dozens, dozens of stories of resistance by First Nations communities to resource development. Um, projects which have led to the investment in Canada by, by uh, Canada's extractive industries have become fraught with uncertainty. And I think that this is uh, especially true, you know, in the area of, 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 of our success as a movement in stopping the building of export pipelines, which have caused the shelving of billions of dollars of expansion projects in the tar sands, most notably Total, the France oil giant and Norway's oil giant, Stat Oil, recently pulling out because of the power of indigenous peoples organizing, taking action. With many exciting financial strategies taking hold, such as the ones Naomi was talking about, the carbon risk strategy lifted up by the good people at Carbon Tracker, and the fossil fuel divestment campaign, which has gone viral, moving in such a short time over $50 billion from the fossil fuel sector, with much, much more to come. We as Indigenous peoples are lifting up our own financial risk campaign that highlights the proven track record of Indigenous communities from stopping corporations from privatizing and destroying the sacred through our native rights-based strategic framework. 
It is clear that Canada's investment climate is not as strong as the government has been claiming. And companies who are interested in investing in Canada need to be aware of the risks involved with Aboriginal title, the extra costs involved with Aboriginal consultation, and the challenges posed to projects when these legal obligations, constitutionally protected, are ignored. <laughs> Simply put, my friends, our system in Canada is politically corrupt. We do not live in a democratic state. Instead, we are living in a corporate state, or more precisely, a petrol state. And it's time that we recognize this together. As indigenous peoples, as workers, as environmentalists, we cannot fight and win these battles on our own. It is time to come out of our silos, to link arms, and to forge a common front against the tyranny of corporate power. These are yeah. These are times when transformations and revolutions take place, but the energies must be harnessed and directed appropriately and must bring together the right mix of vision, strategy, and democratic organizing with a convergence of different movements putting forward a clear vision for radical transformation. The dream I have for us all has its roots deep in reevaluating the relationship which industrialization has damaged the most the relationship we all share with the sacredness of Mother Earth. It involves deepening our understanding of systems of oppression that keep us from coming together, such as race, class, and gender power dynamics. It involves us coming up with comprehensive strategies that embrace an intergenerational approach to strengthening our movement for justice. Ten years ago, when I last gave a keynote here at the Bioneers, I stated that climate change was the civil rights issue of my generation. And I set out on a journey with many strong Indigenous peoples to build what has become the most visible environmental and Indigenous rights campaign in history, the Indigenous Tar Sands Campaign. And after many battles ending in loss and many more in victory, we are now seeing the impact of our collective work. 400,000 people marched in New York City last month. And we were led by indigenous peoples and by people of color from the front lines of the fight for energy and climate justice. The message that came from the Tar Sands block of the march was that of the Cree and Dene indigenous campaigners from the Tar Sands region compelling the climate justice movement to stop Tar Sands at the source. I see a shift in power today and a recognition of the incredible leadership coming from those on the front lines. And we continue to be faced with tremendous odds, you know, but we must all understand that these, these, these challenges that we have are, are, are symptoms of the root problem, which is capitalism. This economic paradigm was born from notions of manifest destiny, the popple bulls, the doctrines of discovery. It was built up with the, with the free labor of slaves on stolen Indian lands. And we have much to do in America and Canada to bring our peoples to a meaningful process of reconciliation. And there is a powerful metaphor between the economic policies of the country of Canada and the United States and their treatment of our indigenous women and girls. When you look at the extreme violence taking place against the sacredness of our Mother Earth in places like the Tar Sands, the fact is, is that this rep and the fact that that represents one of the greatest drivers of both Canadian and U.S. trade policy in our economies, and then you look at the lack of action being taken on the thousands of First Nations women and girls who have been murdered or just disappeared, 
it all begins to make sense. And it's also why our women have been rising up and taking back power from the smothering forces of patriarchy that have been dominating our economic, political, and social, and I would say spiritual institutions. In short, violence against our Mother Earth begets violence against our Native women. And when we turn things around as a peoples, it'll be our women who lead us. And it'll be the sacred feminine creative principle that they carry that will give us the tools we need to build another world. And I encourage you all to reach out um, you know, and sign up at our list at idlenomore.ca to find ways to plug in support. We have a very active Bay Area chapter for those of you from here in the Bay Area and hundreds more across the lower 48 that you should seek out on our website and connect with. And I encourage you all to check out the Polaris Institute and find ways to support the Indigenous Tar Sands campaign and our Emerging Financial Risk campaign. I'm so excited about this moment in time, brothers and sisters. I am excited about finishing the work that we were born to do. And in closing, I'm going to show a video here to close, but I want to share a final quote with you from 13-year-old Silamon Pipeline fighter Takaya Blaney, who in New York City at the People's Climate March said that we should not be asking ourselves what kind of earth we are going to leave for our children, but rather what kind of children are we going to raise to take care of the earth. So I wanted to share some images of the People's Climate March and the face of the Movement for Energy and Climate Justice. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Please come check out the Indigenous People's Tent and uh, come talk to me. Play the video. indigenous issues at the forefront of the walk. And I think a lot of uh, people, a lot of activists are noticing that First Nations are at the forefront of climate change. Reconnecting and restoring that balance. And we hear that over and over from community to community. It doesn't matter if they're from coming from Polynesia, coming from the Arctic, it's all about restoring the balance. Resource extraction and exploitation of our lands is so easy because they go hand in hand. Um, violence against the earth begets violence against women and I think that 
um, when we don't deal with both of them, we're not ever going to really resolve the issue of the colonial mind and the colonial mentalities and the values of patriarchy and the values of capitalism that essentially exploit the land and exploit our women. Now be quiet to take action now because we cannot be standing there. We have to do something. And that's what we're doing here. We are all taking action today. We're little no more. Hey.